I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is uh, inspired by the Holy Ghost to write to Timothy, who is a fellow minister. At the time that Paul writes these words to Timothy, Timothy is in uh, Ephesus. He's uh, the pastor of the church there in Ephesus. And, um, uh, and, and Ephesus was known as the greatest church of, um, of the day, really. I mean, it was at the crossroads of the world. It was, uh, Ephesus is a place where Paul spent uh, a period of time, the longest period of time of anywhere else in his ministry that we have record of, three years and a little bit. And, uh, and the Bible says that a, a revival began there when Paul was there and that all of Asia was reached with the word of God because of the things that God did. There were signs and wonders and miracles that were done. It was just a, a, marvelous, uh, a marvelous thing. And apparently that, that great work continued and Paul left Timothy there to, to carry it on. And so when Paul writes these things to Timothy, uh, he wrote two letters to him. He called Timothy his son in the faith. He apparently had a, a, a special relationship, a closer relationship with Timothy than perhaps he did any of his other ministry helpers. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the last things Paul writes to Timothy is, everybody's left me, uh, you're the only one I've got left, so you come see me. And uh, uh, consequently, Paul is, um, uh, as you would well imagine, somebody that you're close to, you want to make sure you give them your best, you want to make sure you warn them and, and uh, instruct them about everything that God gives you. To, uh, to tell them and everything that you know. And so Paul seems to have that relationship with Timothy. And so he writes some things to Timothy about the last days. Now Jesus has already told his disciples. Certainly Paul was not one of the twelve. But Jesus has already told his disciples what the signs of the end were. And those are related in uh, Matthew chapter 24. He talks about wars and rumors of wars. He talks about earthquakes and famines and pestilences and different things taking place in different parts of the earth. Uh, it, it looks like a modern day newspaper, to be honest with you, um, with all the things that are going on today and, and uh, uh, things that are going on around us. There's really nothing on the list that's, uh, uh, that Jesus made mention of that's not identified in, in the uh, uh, world events, current events, and news that's, uh, that's taking place. But when Paul writes to Timothy, he doesn't write about things, external things, from the standpoint of earthquakes and wars and things like Jesus said. He writes about the condition of people. And he talked about how the, that these were signs of the end. That's interesting to me. Of course, Paul would have access to, uh, to the four Gospels, just like anybody else in, in his time period did. So Paul knew what Jesus said the signs of the end were. And it's interesting to me that the Holy Ghost didn't come back, or at least according to Paul's uh, writing in this letter to Timothy, he didn't say, now Timothy, the, the, the Holy Spirit tells me that the same things that Jesus said were going to happen are really going to happen. There are going to be wars and there are going to be famines and there are going to be earthquakes and, and different things in different places. And that's not what he mentioned. He made mention of what the Holy Ghost told him about people. Now, I think a lot of times we in the church world get our eyes on the events that Jesus identified and we forget to look at the people. I hear a lot of people nowadays talking about, well, look at the things that are going on in the, in the news and, and these are signs of the end. Well, they are, but what about people? So Paul talked about the people. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For people shall be, men shall be lovers of their own selves. The fact that Paul mentions that first by the Holy Ghost is just staggering to me. You know, it's been, um, uh, it's been identified in times past 
that uh, I think it was the 60s were the generation that, that uh, was identified as the me generation. Well, if that's true today, is the selfie generation. I, I don't think it would have made sense to Paul if the Holy Ghost had said, now there are going to be computers and smartphones and social media, and everybody's going to use that to take pictures of themselves. But what is that other than lovers of them, their own selves? Now, I'm not stepping on your toes. I don't care what you take pictures of. I'm not looking at them anyway. <laughs> but are we so self-centered that we think everybody cares about what we're eating? <laughs> that they have to have a picture of the food in front of us? Or that we went to the grocery store or whatever else people are posting that they're doing? Now, folks, I, again, I, I couldn't care less. Uh, you do what you want to do. But I'm not going to discount the fact that the Holy Ghost said that that was going to be a sign of the end. How else is it going to be identified or, or um, um, made known that people are lovers of their own selves except the social media stuff that we see around us? And it's sweeping the world. I mean, it's absolutely sweeping the world. The world's coming apart around us and the church is taking pictures of themselves. It's the truth. I'm going to read this from the, um, from the Amplified. Again, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days will come, or set in, perilous times. I, I, I meant to say this before and I forgot to do it. Um, the Lord impressed upon me some years ago. I don't remember how long ago it was now. But to, to study those words, perilous times. And I found out that the, the root meaning of these words literally means strength-reducing times. Strength-reducing times. Paul's not just telling Timothy, okay, here's what you look for so you know the end is coming. Paul knows that Timothy's got the same Holy Ghost. He does. Paul knows that the Holy Ghost is going to impress upon Timothy things about the end and, and uh, what's going on and where we are in, in God's timeline. If he walks in fellowship with God, just like he will any and every one of us. He's not telling him so that Timothy doesn't miss something. He's telling him so that Timothy is prepared. Well, if perilous times means, and, and I'm not saying it's the only meaning, but if one of the meanings is strength-reducing times, then realize that the warning that Paul is making is this. There are things that are coming and conditions that are going to take place in the earth that are designed by the enemy to reduce your strength. Don't let that happen. Well, is that a greater warning or more important for Timothy than it is for you or me? But if we don't know, I mean, Brother Hagin used to say, I don't know who originally said it, but I first heard him say, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Yet the church seems to be missing some of the warnings, it seems to me. But understand this. That in the last days will come or set in perilous times of great stress and trouble. Hard to deal with and hard to bear. For people will be lovers of self and utterly self-centered. Lovers of money and aroused by an inordinate or greedy desire for wealth. Proud and arrogant and contemptuous boasters. They will be abusive, blasphemous and scoffing. Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful, unholy and profane. They will be without natural human affection, callous and inhuman, relentless, admitting of no truce or appeasement, 
They will be slanderers, false accusers, and troublemakers, intemperate and loose in morals and conduct, uncontrolled and fierce, haters of good. They will be treacherous, betrayers, rash and inflated with self-conceit. They will be lovers of sensual pleasures and vain amusements more, more than and rather than lovers of God. For although they hold a form of piety or true religion, they deny and reject and are strangers to the power of it. Their conduct belies the genuineness of their profession. Avoid all such people. Turn away from them. Now, folks, I want you to notice something. There, and and uh, this is really not my intention this morning to, to go through and take it word by word and talk about the meanings and some, stuff like that. But there are a few things that you need to be aware of. First of all, notice, in, and again, in the King James, it speaks of covetousness. What is covetousness except a desire for something that you feel entitled to? There's never been a generation that's, that's proje- projected themselves or presented themselves as more entitled than today's generation. See, to covet something doesn't just mean you want what somebody else has. It means that you feel entitled to have it. Now, without natural affection is another word that's used. And a lot of times, and most times, it seems to me, that people associate that with homosexuality. And, and there's no question the Bible speaks of a rise of homosexuality in the end and, and, and so forth. No question about that. But the words literally mean without natural affection for kin or without natural kinship. One translation, and I'm not saying it's the only one or the best one or anything else, but one translation says counting family as worth nothing. Have you noticed the loss of importance that family holds in today's society? Um. There's a verse of scripture that Paul speaks of. Well, he writes it to Timothy. I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse, maybe verse 8, something like that. It talks about if somebody doesn't provide for his own, meaning his own household, particularly those of the household of faith, that he's denied the faith and he's worse than an infidel. Family means something to God. Whether it does to you or me or, or people around us, family means something to God. Now notice that it, it concludes in verse, uh, verse 5, the end of verse 5. or Well, let me take verse 5. Notice that it says, having a form of godliness. He's not talking about the world. He's not saying, now Timothy, make sure to keep yourself unspotted from the unsaved because they're really going to get bad. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the condition of the people in the church. Because he says they have a form of godliness... But they denied the power. Having a form of godliness but denied the power. Folks, that is so prevalent in today's church, it's not even funny. Look at all the people that talk about how that everything happens. God's behind everything and he's making things work the way that they work. And if it's tragedy, if it's destruction, if it's whatever, there's some meaning behind it. That's denying the power of the word. It's the common doctrinal position of the modern day, at least the American church. I hope you're thinking. I I don't need you to pump me up. I've had vacation. I don't care what you do. (laughs) I mean, even more so than normal, you know. 
I'm not looking for people to say amen, but I really hope that it's making you think. Because he says, he talks about having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. He's saying, this is the way it's going to be in the church. Don't let yourself get caught up in that. Now notice the next verse. He goes on in verse 6. I'm going to read this again from the Amplified. He said, uh, um, For among them are those who worm their way into homes and captivate silly and weak-natured and spiritually dwarfed women, loaded down with the burden of their sins and easily swayed and led led away by various evil desires and seductive impulses. Now, folks, this would be a great great place to jump on women because Paul identifies that. But that's not the point. The point is very simply this. It's not any more true of women than it is for men. The point is, if people are burdened down with sins, that's where they get pulled off into error. It's not just true for women, it's true for men. So what's the warning? The warning is, don't let yourself get burdened down with sins. Because then, if you stay in fellowship with God, you'll be less likely... Less inclined to be pulled off into error. The error of, the, of, of people's actions that he's just identified. Now here's the dilemma. Or the conundrum. And that is, the Bible says that, that Jesus is returning for a glorious church. That doesn't sound glorious to me. Well, okay, there's a couple of ways we can think this out then. Does that mean he's only going to come back for the people that aren't like that? That's a scary thought for most people. We're talking missing rapture stuff. Well, that that can't be right, folks. God's not just good to people that are good to him. You may have a number of children, some of them in fellowship with you to a greater degree than others. You don't love the ones that are in fellowship with you and hate the others. You wouldn't fail to rescue the ones that aren't in fellowship with you because they've done something wrong or something you don't like. Well, if you're a good enough parent to, do, to operate that way, how much more would God be a good parent where the rapture is concerned? He's not going to leave any of his children behind. There's not a first load and a last load. So that can't be it. We can't change the character and the nature of God to fit some other idea or doctrine we may think we come up with. So what does it mean then? How can he be coming for a glorious church if Paul says this is going to be the condition of the church in the last days? It says to me that God is looking only toward those or talking about what Paul talks to the Ephesians about Jesus coming back for a glorious church. That says to me that, that the Lord is looking past the improper behavior to those that are standing in the place they should be. Now what makes that distinction? Turn with me over to 1 John 3. 1 John 3. Here's the thing that the Lord has been dealing with me about for a long time. Don't know exactly where we're going to go with this, but this is it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21. It says, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments. Now, I know a lot of people don't like that obedience stuff. A lot of people are just into this grace. You know, it's all grace, 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 grace. But John, who apparently understood a little bit about the grace of God because they had to exile him because the enemies of God couldn't kill him. They boiled him in oil and wouldn't die. 
So they finally said, well, okay, let's ship him off somewhere. If we can't do away with his life, we'll just get him away from us. John must have understood something about the grace of God. He must have understood something about the finished work of Jesus and God's love. His letters are all about the love of God. He understood something about that. As a matter of fact, that is the, the, the uh, defining characteristic of John's life. The reason why they couldn't boil him at all and kill him. Or couldn't kill him when they did boil him at all. So don't tell me that we know something about grace that John didn't know. Yet he talked about obedience. Man, that's a dirty word nowadays, isn't it? And whatsoever we ask, verse 22, we receive of him because, because, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Well, if we just left it there, then we'd be left up to the church to tell us what's the commandments and what you do and what don't do and Religion always messes that up. I grew up in a church that was real big on do's and don'ts. Actually, more don'ts than do's. Problem was, they never gave you the power. They never told you where the power was to do the things you were supposed to do or not to do the things you weren't supposed to do. So you're left in this, this condemnation thing. Well, I know I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. I don't know I'm not doing things I should be doing, but I can't find the power for either one of them, so what do I do? We kept rededicating our lives week after week after week. As Brother Hagin used to say, we wore our rededicators out. And we're left in no better condition afterwards than before. But notice what John says. This is a confidence that we have in him. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment. You want to know what commandments to keep? John tells you. This is his commandment. That we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ. And two things. And love one another as he gave us commandment. So he's saying there's two things. You want to please God? Do two things. Believe on the name of Jesus Christ. And walk in love. That's it. Well that fits with what Paul said by the Holy Ghost. He said... Love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So there's not even any Ten Commandments for us anymore. There's one commandment, and that's the law of love. That's it. Because if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him. You're not going to cheat him. You're not going to lie on him. You're not going to do any of the other things that are identified in the commandments. It's one commandment, and that is the law of love. Jesus said in John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. That's what John refers back to. He says, walk in love just like Jesus gave us as a commandment. But notice the first part. The first part is really what I want to focus on. I mean, we could talk about walking in love forever. And, and, and it would be a good thing if we did, I guess. But notice the first part. The first part of the commandment, the first part of pleasing God is that you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Sounds good. Sounds religious. You look at every religion, uh, every Christian denomination, every group that, that believes in Jesus that will say, yeah, that's it. Believe in the name of Jesus. But what do they mean when they say that? We've got these Christianese terms that are ambiguous or, or undefined for so many people. And people are left out there saying, well, oh, yeah, right. How do we do that? What does that mean? Is he really saying this is his commandment to believe that you're saved? That's as far as believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that most denominations go. 
to believe that you're saved, to believe that we're in Christ, to believe that Jesus is our Savior, he's our Redeemer, that he's the one that paid the price for sin, and, and that's it. Is that really what he's saying? Now, if people understood what redemption was, if people took advantage of the redemption that the Bible identifies and defines, that would be fine. But how many groups do you know of that do? Not many. So what does he mean when he says, here's the commandment that we're supposed to keep? Here's the thing that gives us confidence. Here's the thing that causes our prayers to be answered. That we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, I can show you a lot of people that believe they're saved that don't get their prayers answered. That can't be it or it alone. What is he talking about? He's talking about believing on the power of the name of Jesus. Turn back with me to John chapter 14. There's two ways, two primary ways that are identified in Scripture as far as the name of Jesus or the use of the name of Jesus is concerned. And both of them are given to us by Jesus himself. John gives us record. John was the last gospel, in case you don't know uh, the the history of the, the New Testament and so forth. The first three gospels were written fairly early on. And then there's a big, long gap in, in time, and then John, at the end of his life, somewhere around 90 to 94 BC, uh, AD, um, some 30 years after, I'm sorry, some 60 years after Jesus has been crucified, John, at the end of his life, comes back and writes his account, his gospel account. And he's not trying to, to confirm anything that any of the other writers, any of the things that the other writers wrote. He knows what they are. He's read the other Gospels. He's filling in the blanks. He's filling in the spots, the holes that were left. And so John gives us information that none of the other Gospel, or most of the other Gospel writers don't don't give us information about. There is some overlap. But particularly, one of the things that interests me about the, uh, the Gospel of John, maybe more than anything else, is that John is looking back some 60 to 65 years to the time, the last night that he spent with Jesus at the Last Supper, and gives us a huge amount of information that nobody else even touches on. Now, he was an eyewitness. It's an eyewitness account because he was there. Of the other three Gospels, Matthew is the only one that was there, and Matthew's account is to prove that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And so he comes at it from a totally different perspective. But John, after having walked as a Christian for some 60-something years, he comes back and he says, now here's what Jesus told us. And if you go back and look, beginning in John chapter 14, which talks about the Last Supper and what Jesus spoke to the disciples about on the the night of the Last Supper, and read down through chapter 16, and I think one mistake we make, and I'm hugely um, guilty of this, I read things and take them apart. I'll read scriptures and stop and say, now, what does that mean? What does that word mean? And stuff like that. And, and nothing wrong with that. You can gain some good information that way. But remember that John is telling a story. And so if you want to really be blessed, take the, John, the, the book of John, starting with chapter 14, and read down through the end of chapter 16 and read it fast. And see that Jesus is talking about, here's what to do while I'm gone, and I'm going to be gone in just a couple of hours. Last things Jesus told them. And notice in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John how much is focused around doing what, he did, what Jesus did here on the earth and doing it in his name. In other words, in my opinion at least, the last information that Jesus left his disciples before he went to the cross 
was information about the name of Jesus that you don't get anywhere else in Scripture. Look at John chapter 14. We'll take a couple of these verses. Verse 12, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. That would have to be believing in his name, wouldn't it? I mean, you can't believe in the name of Jesus without believing on him. So those would be interchangeable terms in our application. He that believeth on me or my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask, the word ask means demand. It means to call for or require. It doesn't mean to ask like you would ask for a favor. It doesn't mean to ask as, uh, to, to ask uh, for God to do something. It means to place a demand. It's like you writing a check. When you write a check on your bank, it's you putting a demand on the funds you have on deposit. You're not asking the bank, please give me money that's not mine. In, other, uh, in, in fact, some of the older checks, I don't see them on many of the new ones, at least mine aren't that way. But in the older ones, the, the, um, uh, the line where you make out the check to whoever you're making out to used to say pay to the demand of. It's a legal arrangement. You have a legal contract with the bank. They are required by law, according to that contract, to pay funds that you write checks upon or that you make demands upon. That's the legal arrangement Jesus is talking about. He said, and whatsoever you demand, whatsoever you call for, require in my name, that will I do. Notice that phrase, that will I do. Jesus is saying, you make a demand and I'll do it. He didn't say God will do it. He didn't say the Father will do it for you. He said, you make a demand on my name and I'll do it. Whatsoever you shall demand in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask or demand anything in my name, I will do it. Now, he says it twice to make sure that we got it. So the first place that the Bible talks about the use of the name of Jesus is making a demand to do the same works that he did. Now, folks, that's not the same thing as you using the name of Jesus in your own life. That's you using the name of Jesus to break the power of the devil like Jesus did over people when he was here on the earth. Jesus didn't use the name of Jesus for him to be free. He was already free. And let me make a little comment on that. You're as free right now as Jesus was when he was here on the earth. You may not be living up to it. You may not be aware of it. But you have the same life and therefore the same freedom that Jesus had when he was here. Now, if you're not living up to it or if you're not experiencing that, then there's some things that you need to know and things that you need to be aware of so that you can enter into that and walk in it. And that operates through growth and at varying degrees as we grow and develop in the things of God. But you're just as free as Jesus was. But Jesus didn't use his name to set himself free. And, and it seems to me that one of the mistakes we make is we talk about the absolute power in the name of Jesus. And there is. But we don't qualify that. We just leave it out there like the name of Jesus will do anything. Jesus said, whatever you call for, require, or demand in my name, that's what I'll do. And people will use the name and it doesn't happen. It's like, well, what's up with that? Do you remember in Luke chapter 9, right toward the end of Jesus' ministry, it says that Jesus was talking to the disciples about something. And John speaks up and John says, 
Master, we saw somebody casting out devils in your name, and we told him to stop. Remember the story? Well, Jesus says, don't forbid him. There's nobody that can, if anybody's not against us, then they're for us. So don't stop him from doing that. But here's the question. How could he do it? John said that he was casting out devils in his name, in, in the name of Jesus. So apparently the name of Jesus works while Jesus was still here on the earth. Right? But what's this guy's position or basis of authority? He's not one of the 12. He's not one of the 70. John doesn't say, hey, one that used to be part of our group went out and started doing this. He said, we saw somebody implying somebody we don't know. That's out there using your name, casting out devils. Well, at least he's using it in the right way. But John, in denominational type thinking, says, no, you're not part of us. You can't do that. That's what denominations do. It's all ours. If you're not part of our group, forget it. Jesus said, no, that's not the way it works. Jesus did not say, well, now, wait a minute. That doesn't work if he's not one of my group. Why? Because the name of Jesus works for whoever will work it. However, that does not mean that the use of the name of Jesus that he talks about here in John 14 or that the guy was using in Luke chapter 9 is uh, outside of or works in some way beyond the boundaries that the scripture gives us. For example, Mark chapter 9. Jesus can't cast the devil out of this father's little boy until he gets the father in faith. Well, then the guy in Luke chapter 9 can't be casting the devil out of anybody if he can't get them in faith either, can he? I mean, the use of the name of Jesus in John 14 or in Luke chapter 9 cannot violate the rules that Jesus showed us in his own use to set people free, can it? So there are limitations. Part of me thinks, the fleshly side of me thinks, wouldn't it be great if the name of Jesus worked whether people believed or not? Wouldn't it be great if the name of Jesus worked for me if people believed or not? It wouldn't be so great if, people, if the name of Jesus works for you whether people believed or not. Because you might be using the name of Jesus in a different way than I'd be using the name of Jesus. And then we've got competing names of Jesus. That's why there have to be rules and limitations. See, I can't just believe something on you. Brother Hagin used to talk about how people uh, in the early days of the healing revival, Brother Hagin was instructed by the Lord to go into churches. He said in every meeting he'd go to, it'd be somebody, at least somebody during the meeting. Many times uh, more than one person would come up and say, I'm going to believe God to give you a tent because all the healing revivalists had tents. Brother Hagin said, I don't want a tent. I'm not supposed to be in a tent. The Lord told me to stay in the churches. Well, I'm, I'm just believing. Oral Roberts has got a tent. And Jack Coe's got a tent. A.A. Allen's got a tent. And all these others have tents. Uh, we like your ministry. We're going to believe God for you to have a tent. Well, it's a good thing that didn't work. Here the Lord's telling him to stay in churches and other people want him out there in tents. And the same thing would be true for you and me. I might look at your situation and say, well, here's what I want for you. Well, what if that's not what God has for you? So it's got to be something that witnesses with somebody's heart or is governed by the boundaries of faith. Faith begins where the will of God is known. If it's not the will of God for you to have something, then wouldn't it be a terrible tragedy for me to be believing in the name of Jesus for you to have it? And I think that's what a lot of people do.
They just decide what somebody else wants, so they start praying for it. When it may not be God's plan for them at all. So when Jesus talks about whatsoever you call for or require in my name, he can't be talking about violating the rules of, of faith or the boundaries that, that, uh, that kept the power of God working in his own life, can he? He can't be saying, now I was limited by faith. That's why I had to preach and get people to believe. But don't you worry about it. Because whatever you call for or require in my name, I'll just do it. Well, then that would make God usurp. It would cause him to have to usurp the will of uh, the person, in many cases, to get whatever you wanted them to have. And God doesn't do that. So what is Jesus saying? He is absolutely saying the name of Jesus will work and it will work every time when it works according to the rules. So what are the rules? The rules are simply this. When you can get somebody to believe, you can do the same works, the same ministry works to set people free that he did in an unlimited fashion. So what's the limitation? Only the faith of the individual. That's why we preach so much about faith, folks. That's why it's so important to tell people what belongs to them. That's what the modern day church is not doing. That's what's keeping the modern day church from being strong and being a church that's full of the glory of God. Because the glory of God always, God always confirms his word with signs following. What we think of as the glory of God in operation or manifestation is the result, the sign, the accompanying sign of the word of God preached and believed and acted on. Always. Now remember what Jesus, uh, or what, the, what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 1, ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, meaning the last days. Ask of the Lord rain, that means an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And the Lord will make bright clouds. King James says lightnings, or oh, I'm sorry, King James says bright clouds, but in the margin of many Bibles, mine included, it says lightnings. One translation of that uh, phrase bright clouds, or the word that's translated bright clouds, is lightnings. He'll make lightnings. What's that talking about? It's talking about a display of his power. Bright clouds is a manifestation of his presence, just like the cloud of glory filled the Old Testament temple when it was dedicated, Solomon's temple. And lightnings is an indication of the power of God in manifestation. So the Bible is telling us, the word is prophesied to us, that in the last days when men will get worse and worse, where the church will operate as lovers of themselves and covetous and all this other kind of stuff because they're burdened down with sins. They don't take the power of God and set themselves free, use it to be free from sins and so they'll be easily swayed into the way of the world. In the midst of that, it says God will show up with a manifestation of his power and a demonstration of his presence. I think I said those backwards. A manifestation of his presence and a demonstration of his power. And that's the glorious church that he's coming back for. How's that going to happen? Two main ways. Number one, that people will do the work of Jesus in the ministry. Look with me to chapter 15. Let me show you something else. Here's another part of this. Chapter 15, let me start reading in verse 14. And again, this is all in red. If you've got a red letter Bible, you can see this is John is saying this is all part of what happened at the Last Supper. Here's Jesus' instruction, his last instruction to his disciples. Verse 14 of John 15. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. The word friends doesn't mean buddies. It means covenant partners like Abraham was a covenant partner with God. He's saying you're in covenant with me just like Abraham was if you do what I command you. We already know what the commandment of God is. 
to believe in the name of Jesus and to walk in love. Now, there may be specific information and instruction that God gives you, just like he gave them specific instruction. All the disciples are those that became apostles, uh, the 12 minus Judas, who was later uh, replaced by Matthias. They had different works that were given them to do in the ministry. And so there may be specific things that have to do with your obedience to him too. That's true for all of us. But he said, you're my friends or covenant partners if you do whatsoever I command you. Now, what was the benefit of being a covenant partner with God? Abraham had unlimited access to whatever God had. Abraham's the only one that stood before God when he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the story? Genesis chapter 18, I think it was. He said, if you find 50 righteous there, you're going to destroy the city. And God said, well, no, since you asked, I won't. How about 45? How about 40? How about 35, 30, 25, 15, 10? I'll stop at 10. God may have spared the place just for Lot's sake if if Abraham had asked him. I'm guessing that Abraham thought, well, there's got to be at least 10. I mean, there's Lot and his wife and his kids and their wives. Surely there's 10. I'm guessing he's thinking, I I can count 10, but not really. That's one of the benefits of being a covenant partner with God. God told Abraham what he was going to do before he did it. Why? Because he's in covenant relationship with him. He's not going to hide anything that he does. Well, if you're a friend just like Abraham was a friend, then God won't hide things from you either. But notice it's qualified. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. You've got to stay in fellowship with God. You've got to stay in fellowship with God, folks. And... Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, covenant partners. For all things I have heard of my Father, that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Now, folks, here he's not talking about just being saved. He's talking about being called to a ministry. Not everybody's chosen and ordained. The Bible speaks of salvation as being chosen, all right, but it doesn't speak to it speaks of salvation as being ordained. He's talking about ministry. So what does that mean to us? Jesus placed a high value, a high priority on ministry. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 that the harvest was great, but the laborers are few. So pray for the Lord to send laborers into the harvest. I believe that's one thing that the church ought to be doing in the last days more than ever before, and that's praying that God will raise up ministry gifts. I caught myself praying something a couple of years ago. I've been praying it ever since. Wasn't thinking about it. Kind of surprised myself when I heard it coming out of my mouth. But I began praying for safe guides. Lord, raise up safe guides. I heard myself say that. I said it three or four times before I really picked up on it. But I heard myself say that and I thought, yeah, man, that's good. I don't want just guides. I want safe guides. I've been praying that ever since. I believe in the last days God's going to raise up people in the ministry like never before. I believe he'll accelerate, accelerate some things. You know, it's a funny thing. Um, let, me, let me get on a soapbox here for just a minute. I've I, got my eye on the clock, so I'll take this out of my time, not yours. Like that means anything. <laughs> I've heard people ever since the 1980s talk about in the last days there's going to be house churches. Oh, there's going to be house churches. We're going to go back to the, the, the days of, of, of the book of Acts. There's going to be churches in houses. 
Well, okay. Meaning what? Meaning every one of these house churches is going to have a pastor? Or does it just mean that pastors really aren't important? We'll just meet in houses. What does that mean? You know, I, I was... I heard that here recently again and, uh, and, and just kind of scoffed at it a little bit. And I said, and then I stopped and I said, Lord, what do you think about that? And, and the Lord spoke to me and he said, that's like telling people to go back and live in an apartment because that's where they started. Well, I started off in an apartment. How many of you did? I started off in an apartment, but you know what? I moved out. You know why I moved out? I moved out so that we could gain financially. Instead of paying rent, we could start putting money into something that belonged to us. And secondly, so that our family could do more than what we were able to do when we were in the apartment. Why do you think churches moved out of homes? For the same two reasons. There were things that we couldn't do, our family couldn't do, Beth and I, meaning our family. There were things that we couldn't do in our apartment that we can do in a house. We can have people over. We can provide for people. We can have kids. We couldn't do that in, in, in an apartment. But see, there's some kind of nostalgic, oh, house churches, churches in houses. Well, what are people after? Are they after paying their tithes, not paying their tithes anymore? Are they after not having a pastor that, that, that says, look, here's how things are, whether it steps on your toes or not? I mean, what are people after? Or did Paul just mess up when he talked about pastors being part of the ministry gifts? Oh, no, we don't need those. Well, okay, good luck with that. Show me how spiritually mature those people are that stay home and watch TV instead of going to church. I mean, because after all, there's a lot of Christians that take the position that, well, I, 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 I just don't go to church. I don't believe in organized religion. God does. That's why he organized it. So people come up with all these kind of ideas about stuff. And, and honest to goodness, I don't care how spiritually sweet you make it sound. It's just trying to get out of God's order of arrangement. Now, on the other hand, it could be that people that first started prophesying this about churches and homes could have, not knowing what they were seeing, were foreseeing people having Bible studies in homes where they could get online and have access to the Word of God all the time. All the time. We've got, uh, uh, that's great, that's wonderful, but that's not church. That doesn't take the place of a pastor or the ministry gifts that God set in the church. We've got somebody in, in one of the uh, major universities in the East that use our online stuff every week for a Bible study. And they've they petitioned the, the uh, university, had to go through this religious discrimination type thing, to get the university to provide them with a, a, a room with the video equipment and stuff like that so they can have it. And they've outgrown the room. Now they've got two or 300 people in there that had to go to a big auditorium to do it. Every week we're preaching to two or 300 college students in the Big East. Now, we didn't have anything to do with that. We found out about it and thought, well, isn't that cool? It's just somebody took it on themselves to do it. Now, that's fine, but that's not church. That may be the only church that those kids have for the period of time that they're in college because maybe there's nothing else around, but it's still not church. Those God was really serious when the Holy Ghost said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Church is important. It's important. It means something. 
And it means more than you just showing up once a month. <laughs> At least it's supposed to. Now I know there are distractions. I know there are all kinds of things. And, and I know my teaching is good enough for you once a month. That'll get you by. <laughs> I understand all of that. You hear the dumbest things when people start making excuses. But it's supposed to mean more to you than that. Not because I say so or not because of me, but because God says so. Are you out there? So ministry gifts should be more important in the last days than ever before. You need to be praying that God would raise up ministry gifts. We need more ministry gifts in this church. Not to take my place. Not to take my place. But I'm not supposed to be doing everything. I don't have a desire to do everything. God wants to raise up more people. Amen. So there's an aspect of that. He said, I, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you. Did you forget we were in John 15? You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. That means called and set you apart. That you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. God's not into part-time stuff. He's into lasting stuff. Now what's going to cause us, even those that are called to the ministry, what's going to cause us to bring forth fruit that lasts? Notice the last phrase. And whatsoever you shall ask, call call for or require. It means the, the word demand. Same word in John 14. Whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So what's he saying? John chapter 14, he said, you use my name to set people free and I'll do it. John chapter 15, he's saying, you use my name for whatever you need to bring forth fruit in the ministry and God will give it to you. Talking about two different things, same use of the name of Jesus or same name of Jesus, but different use, different applications. Both related to the ministry. Now look at John chapter 16. Jesus is still talking, still red letters. Notice in verse 23. He said, and in, and in that day, meaning the day of his resurrection, the church age, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Another translation says, and I think this is a little better, no more questions. He's saying the time when I, when I leave, you're not, I'm not going to be around for you to ask questions. For the last three years, he's been answering all their questions. Now he's telling them, you can still get answers to your questions, but it's not going to be from me. And in that day you shall ask me nothing or no more questions. Verily, verily, I say unto you. In other words, truly, truly. In other words, he's making an emphasis, emphasizing a point. He's saying truly, count on it. Write this down. Take this to the bank. Truly, truly, I say unto you. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father. Now this word ask is a different word. It means to petition. It means to inquire of. Whatsoever you request of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto, up till now, in other words, have you asked nothing in my name? Ask means request again. Hitherto, have you requested nothing in my name, meaning of the Father? They've requested of him. They've used his name in ministry, but they haven't asked the Father. They haven't gone to the Father about anything in the name of Jesus up to that point in time. Because that belongs to the church. didn't even belong to the disciples. It belongs to the church. But ask or request, and you shall receive, notice the last phrase, that your joy may be full. 
Now here he's talking about the name of Jesus in prayer. So two main ways that he talks about the name of Jesus. One used in ministry to either do the works of Jesus to set people free or to ask God for what they need to bring forth fruit, ministry fruit. Secondly, the name of Jesus works in prayer. And there are no restrictions, no limitations on that except the one that we've already identified and that's faith. Which tells you right away why most of the church doesn't get their prayers answered. They don't believe what they're asking for. They either don't believe it's the will of God or they don't know what the word of God says about it belonging to them. They may even hope for it. They may even want it to be true. But it takes more than hoping and wanting. It takes believing. Jesus said, whatsoever you shall ask, believing you shall receive. So what's going to make the glorious church? The thing that keeps coming up to me, the thing that the Lord keeps dealing with me about is the use of the name of Jesus. The use of the name of Jesus. The church, the glorious church that Jesus is coming back for, the glorious church that Jesus is going to, to, um, uh, to enforce his work in with what's identified in the Old Testament as the latter rain, bright clouds, lightnings. That's a church that's going to be operating in the power of God to set people free. And that the name of Jesus is going to be working to, to, to bring people answers in prayer. It's time for the church to be the church. I mean, you've got people whose heads are being cut off in the other parts of the world you know, when Muslims are taking over. It's time for the church to be the church. And, and you know, it's a, um, we could talk politics all day long. And, uh, and get ourselves all wound up about stuff. But the fact is, if you're looking for the political scene to change, more power to you. I, I'm not trying to discourage you, but you, you're wasting your time. I would love for the political scene to change. I'd love for there to be another Reagan to come up and straighten things out and set things in order and get things back and, and, and operate according to the Constitution that we say we're founded on and all this kind of stuff. I'd love all that and, and, and you know, I could argue that with the best of you. But that's not the plan of God. God's not going to save America through politics. God's not going to save people through political parties. I'm having a hard time telling the difference between one and another now, these days. I don't care what the names are. They're doing all the same things. Maybe to different degrees, but it's all the same stuff. I used to have a political party. I don't anymore. But I've got a Savior. I've got a Redeemer. I've got one who's greater than any problem that the country or the individuals in the country face. What are you going to do, Pastor Mike, when, when they start coming over the border and ISIS starts working in America? Same thing I'm doing now. I'm going to operate in the name of Jesus. Well, what are you going to do, Pastor Mike, when they take away the tax exemption for the churches and, and, and then people's giving isn't tax deductible? I'm going to believe God then just like I believe God now. Folks, if it takes me hitting the lottery to keep the church going, I'll hit the lottery. I mean that. I'm serious about that. If that's what it took, the wealth of the world is laid up for the just. Now, somebody's going to hear that and say, oh, God spoke to me. I'm supposed to play the lottery. <laughs> well, good luck to you. Just pay your tithes if you hit. <laughs> I'm not saying that. 
But if that's what it took, bless God. God fed the, the prophets in the Old Testament with ravens. He knows where the ravens are if it's necessary. I don't think it's going to come to that. But I do believe it's going to come to the supernatural and spectacular being in operation for everybody to see. For everybody to see. We hear such, what, such uh, despicable things being done to Christians in other parts of the world, in the Middle East and stuff like that. But what you don't hear is how Jesus is appearing to people in visions and dreams. What you don't hear is about how Jesus is showing himself to be the redeemed, the risen Savior, the Redeemer. To people that have never even heard him preached. To where they have to go find out who is this Jesus. And when they find out their lives change. Folks don't be concerned about the things that are going on in the world. God's bigger than politics. If, if, if your idea of God is only as big as what the, what the government passes laws to, to enact. You got too small a God. If your God is only as big as the, as the tax laws that are written, your God's too small. Your idea of God is way too small. If God can only supply your needs when the economy is, is going at a certain pace, then you don't have a right picture of God. Now let me tell you another part of this, and this may not be good news to some people. It may take that kind of back against the wall for some people to realize who God is. It may take for the church being persecuted for the church, meaning the church at large, not necessarily for me, I already know. But it may take that for the church at large to figure out who God really is and what he'll really do. And if that's what it takes, bring it on. Don't care. You look at the book of Acts, when the church is persecuted, that's when the glory of God shows up. Some people are trying to avoid persecution, and so they live in such a way that they're not persecuted. But Paul said, those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. Which explains why most people aren't. But if that's what it takes, bring it on. If you're afraid of the devil doing something, you need to face that fear. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, what if the government confiscates all the funds that we have in the bank? Does that change God in some way? Does that change the promises of God in some way? What if he takes away my retirement account? Don't retire. <laughs> Folks, I'm not saying these things are going to happen, but you can't be afraid that they will. I mean, sooner or later, the government's going to have to find some place to get money from. I mean, how can they keep spending what they don't have unless they get more? Something's got to happen. Well, people look at that and they get all afraid. Oh, oh, we better sock our money away. We better hide in the hole. Well, you go hide in the hole if you want to. I'm not going to. I'm going to keep preaching in the name of Jesus. I'm going to keep, people, keep setting people free by teaching them how to believe God, teaching them the truth of the word of God, and watch the power of God work for them. That's the glorious church that Jesus is coming back for. I don't see that the Bible says Jesus is coming back for a church in a hole. Now, if you think God can find you when the rapture occurs, if you're in the hole, good luck to you. Not me. And I want to be out there. Don't you? Isn't that the way you want to see God work in the last days? It's what the Bible says he'll do. If only we'll believe. If only we'll believe. 
if only we'll believe. Jesus put no limitations on the use of the name of Jesus. If people would believe, they'd do the same works that he did, and they'd get answers to their prayers in their own life, not just ministry prayers, not just the pastor's prayers work, not just the church's prayers work, but the individual's prayers will work if it just comes down to believing God. And that's all it comes down to. I said something to the Lord the other day. I said, Lord, I've got nothing without you. What I'm believing for is absolutely impossible. I've got nothing if your word's not true. And man, it was like there was a smile lit up on the inside of me. Because that's exactly where God wants you to be. God doesn't want you to think, well, Lord, I believe your word because I'm strong. Well, whoop-de-doo for you. He doesn't want you to believe his word because you feel like it's going to work. Because feelings can change. He wants you to believe his word because he said it. Smith Wigglesworth said, when I feel strong in faith, that's when I'm the weakest. Because I'm relying on my feelings. But when I feel the weakest in faith, that's when I'm the strongest. Because all I've got is his word. All I've got is his word. That's all we've got. And that's more than enough. More than enough. More than enough.